Welcome to the Optimal You podcast. This is pharmacist Steve Ersfeld. Grab a cup of coffee, sit back, and enjoy the show. Okay, welcome to uh, the Ersfeld Pharmacy Optimal You podcast. This is episode two, uh, where we're bringing you practitioners with unique practices that you might find helpful in your journey to the Optimal You. So today's guest is Trisha Fenner. Uh, Trisha is a nurse practitioner who is up in Minot. She has her own clinic up there called uh, the Minot Health Center, and she is a North Dakota native and went to school at University of Mary. Uh, Trisha is, uh, has, how long, is, how long have you been in your own clinic, Trisha? It'll be eight years in August. No, I'm sorry, in July. Okay. Wow. Eight years. That's a long time. Um, you want to tell us a little bit about your practice and what you do and, and what's going on up in Minot? Yeah, so um, uh, first off, I guess, thank you for having me. And as, as Steve said, I opened my own practice uh, almost eight years ago. And um, prior to that, I was family practice at Trinity. So I have quite a bit of experience up to now under my belt. And I guess one of the big things that we that we do here is we we take care of patients a little bit off the beaten path. And uh, we, we still utilize conventional medicine, which, which I believe has a very important uh, piece to everybody's, everybody's care. However, there's a lot that we can do that we, from a a functional integrated medicine side that we could never touch from the conventional side. So we, we do various different things such as, um, well visits, um, diabetes, thyroid, hormones, um, some aesthetic work. So we just have a, a lot of different things that we can offer to various individuals and just try to capture as many patients that we can to help change and improve their lives. That's awesome. That's great. They're, they're lucky to have you as a resource in the community up there, Trisha. Um, kind of interesting, interesting fact here. Um, I went back in our records and we started filling prescriptions with you back in December of 2013. So a little over eight years working with you. So it's, it's been uh, a pleasure to have you allow us to help you and your patients uh, with some, you know, difficult cases, difficult compounds, things like that. So, so today, yeah, today's topic is going to be SIRS. So that's uh, kind of something a little bit new that I don't think is going to be on many people's radar, but uh, SIRS is an acronym for Chronic Inflammatory Response Syndrome. So I know that's kind of a little bit of a a passion and maybe a direction that you're going to be taking uh, your practice a little bit and maybe helping patients differently. Do you want to kind of let people know what SIRS is, and then we're going to dive into the whole conundrum, I guess, huh? Yeah, um, I guess starting off, uh, probably how long ago was it now? This past fall, maybe August, September, I had really no idea what SIRS was. I had no idea how to incorporate it. I had heard about it, but beyond that, uh, nothing else. And um, unfortunately, a, a patient of mine has been quite ill and she has gone through so many things and doctoring and whatnot, and still just not finding answers. So I heard a little bit more about SIRS and um, found out that she, um, you know, she had got gotten tested for some mold issues and, 
and come to find out, you know, SIRS and mold go together. And I guess my biggest frustration was not being able to help her. Um, for the most part, I mean, when I do have a patient, I can help them to some degree, but I couldn't do anything to get her better. And so we, I started looking into SIRS. I started um, doing courses and conferences and it's, it's a beast of a diagnosis. It's a beast of a process to get people better, but, but it's also exciting when, when we can find a reason, hopefully why people are feeling the way they are for so long and kind of gives them a little bit of hope. So SIRS, as Steve says, chronic inflammatory response syndrome. And what, what causes SIRS is, um, is when p- patients have what's called a biotoxin illness, biotoxin threat on their immune system. So when we talk about biotoxin, it's not just regular toxin. So biotoxin is more of a, a fragment of a bacteria, um, mold, uh, uh, algae, or like an infected uh, fish that's carrying like ciguatera. There's a number of other different biotoxins, but what happens is their, their bodies get attacked with this, um, with this threat. And in our system, we have two different immune systems. We have our innate immune system, which is what we are born with. And then we have our adaptive immune system and our innate immune system is the guys that come in early to clean up the, um, I guess they come in kind of like the troops and try to get to the area of, um, clean up the damage from whatever threat was on in your body. So when you think about when you're, when you're first starting to get ill, you get fevers, you get lymph node enlargement, you get that inflammatory response. So once these guys, the macrophages, you know, uh, macrophages, eosinophils, basophils kind of do their job there. The next process is that they need to get their, get that antigen across to the um, adaptive immune system and help with the resolution phase of the process. So in, in SIRS, there's a problem where the bridge that connects the two immune systems isn't working. And that's typically due to a problem on chromosome six and within what's called the HLA markers. So when people have that problem, they just cannot get across the bridge to get to your B cells to in um, to provide antibodies for that individual. So what happens is your body has this threat, your body has this infection per se, and you are in a chron- chronic state of inflammation. And as your body is in this chronic state of inflammation, you are in fight or flight because the last thing you, your body is going to be as calm, cool, and chill when you have an attack going on in your system. So as your body goes into fight or flight, your cortisol then starts going up because cortisol is fight or flight. Cortisol is calm, cool, or cortisol can be, I got nothing to give. So when our body is under attack, um, our cortisol is going to go up and our cortisol is regulated uh, between the brain and uh, your adrenal glands, which are uh, sitting on top of your kidneys. So you have what's called the hypothalamus, you have the pituitary, then you have the adrenals. So when we're under stress, we have, as I said, the pituitary, the hypothalamus, but we also have what's called the hippocampus. The hippocampus in our brain has the most cortisol receptors in the brain. 
So as we're under this threat and this chronic inflammation, your brain is getting just saturated with cortisol. And as your brain's getting saturated, initially your brain will get larger, but then cortisol is a catabolic steroid, which means it's going to degrade tissue. So as you start dropping that hippocampus due to the cortisol effect, um, eventually that hypothalamus that is responsible to help with the cortisol also starts to shrink. And once we start damaging that hypothalamus, you have leptin receptors in that hypothalamus. And those are typically the first receptors to get damaged due to all this ongoing stress. So when leptin receptors get damaged, people can have rapid weight gain. They can have uncontrollable hunger. They can have um, maybe increase their insulin resistance and increased risk of diabetes. But you also have um, in that hypothalamus, something called MSH, which stands for melanocyte stimulating hormone. And we want that nice and high in our system because it has many, many uh, benefits. But as that hypothalamus continues to get damaged, your MSH level drops. And this is where we can really start to see um, a number of different um, problems come in. So MSH is, for one thing, it's directly related to how tight those junctions are in your gut. So if you're trying to work on a gut and you just can't seem to get gut problems better, sometimes you have to really calm the brain and work on improving that MSH level from a cortisol standpoint before you ever try to get control of your, of your gut concerns. So when we have that low, that reduced MSH level, um, we can see various systems start to get affected. So people usually start having sleep disturbances, increased chronic pain, GI problems, prolonged illness. Um, they also have a, the change in the cortisol. Um, they have hormone abnormalities. They then have um, lower, um, they have difficulty with their antidiuretic hormone, which increases their thirst, static, static shocking. Um, they also can have what's called Marcons, which is a multiple antibiotic resistant coag negative staph bacteria deep in their nasal cavity. And when this isn't, when this is not taken care of, it can continue to increase what's called the cytokine storm, which most people have heard of with, with what we've gone through the past couple of years. And if those marcons are not cleared, we can then have um, continuing to drop your MSH level. And then just all the problems that come along with inflammatory processes, along with autoimmune issues that can be triggered and whatnot. So, so we hear this, this term, um, you know, brain on fire or neuroinflammation. Mm -hmm. um, is that play a part in this whole process as well? 100% because when your brain is so saturated with this cortisol, your brain is on fire. And when we start seeing all of these symptoms start to come, such as the cluster analysis failing, plus what's called the visual acuity test, which we'll um, discuss after a bit here, that is telling us your brain's on fire. And again, fixing that, sometimes fixing that gut, you have to start with the brain before you can get any control over the gut. Okay. So we've kind of established a little bit about what this, this SERS patient is going to look like. So what, what kind of causes, what, what is going to be a root cause of, of some of these things? I know you mentioned Lyme disease and, and ticks and things like that and mold. So what, what's going on in these patients and, and what, what is going to be an underlying cause that, that you think is going to be an issue? 
So like I said, yeah, initially this has to be, this has to be initially spurred from a biotoxin illness. So patients can go, you know, say they had exposure to mold when they were 10, they lived in a house or whatnot. They can go through life and not have many problems with this. But when, when sometimes people just start to get more problems with it, when they go through just that significant stress response that they've had at some point in time in their life, that can then trigger the whole cascade of everything getting out of control. So I, I feel like we will be seeing a lot more patients like this, especially here in the Minot area where we were flooded back in 2011. And there's, there's a lot of people that have mold exposure. And with all the stress in the world these days, and people are just getting sicker and sicker and sicker when we should be a country of getting healthier with all our technology, but yet nobody can figure out why these people are so sick. And so I think just stress alone is one of the leading triggers to bring this all out and get people sick. Yeah. I, I kind of, I, I look back at that, that flood and I, I had the opportunity to come up there and, and help out a little bit uh, post-flood, um, help to uh, clean up a house. And I look at that house and, you know, I think I had a, I had a N95 mask on and I took all the precautions necessary, but we were, mm -hmm. we were pulling out crap and mold and I'm like, mm -hmm. oh, this was bad. So I can't imagine the, the percent of population up in the Minot area that is probably dealing with these things. And I know that is like a, an impressive overview of, of what SERS is and what a patient is going to, is going to be um, looking to looking for, I guess. So I, got, I have a couple questions within that. Um, mm -hmm. So you had, you had mentioned, um, I think the stress thing is is a huge thing. I think there's a lot of people mm -hmm. out there that just can't deal with stress. So that paints a mm -hmm. good picture of, of what that person is going to look like. Mm -hmm. um, you also mentioned HLA and um, another marker. Are those things that, that, that you're going to test to find out if those patients are either deficient yep. or have a genetic um, mutation that would prevent them from you know, maybe being able to handle the toxins? Yes. Yep. Um, we do um, labs typically through LabCorp for this. Um, the, the individuals who I'm taking my course from, and Dr. Heyman and Dr. Shoemaker, um, they highly recommend LabCorp as they've used them for years. So we send labs off to LabCorp and we, we draw numerous labs, including HLA markers, um, that's that's interesting. You mentioned uh, Dr. Shoemaker because I um, I have his I think original book, the Mold Warrior book that I've had for mm -hmm. fifteen years, and I it's like reading an in depth textbook. Um, <laughs> so I've I've kind of dabbled a little bit in some of this stuff, but not knowing yeah. where to take it. This uh, yeah. with Dr. Heyman and Dr. Shoemaker, they're they're kind of putting these protocols together that are making them. I don't want to say they're simplistic, but they're, they're, I think, more doable or achievable for practitioners. Would you kind of agree with that? Absolutely. 
Yeah. So, so, so you, let's talk about just symptomology. So uh, what would, what would a typical patient that, that you would think maybe would be a SERS candidate or somebody that you think might be a SERS patient, what, what would that patient maybe look like? So that, you know, that patient typically is somebody who, even if they don't know they had molder Lyme or whatnot, this type of patient is somebody who, I mean, they can be still fairly high functioning, but they, they could have anywhere from, you know, fatigue, muscle problems, memory concerns, headaches, um, difficulty with word finding, concentration, joint pain, morning stiffness, shortness of breath, sinus issues, tremors, tingling, um, coughing, confusion, mood swings, um, increased urinary problems due to the um, the reduced ADH levels and antidiuretic hormone issues and uh, tearing of the eyes, static shocking. So if you know somebody who is always having static shocks along with multiple other symptoms that nobody can figure out and they're just kind of dealing with it, good possibility that they could have, have SIRS. Um, also like that ice pick pain, mood swings, night sweats. So there's a number of various um, symptoms that come along with it. And, and we also go from a symptomology wise, we go off, it's called a biotoxin, I guess, graph, and it's a graph of 13 boxes. And in order to essentially fail it, which would be considered a concern of SERS, you have to have at least eight boxes checked off with at least one of the symptoms in that box. I, I have that, uh, it's, uh, the cluster symptom cluster analysis is what they refer to it as. I have that in front of me and actually I had a family member of, of mine check that and uh, she mm -hmm. checked 10 boxes. So, so yep. I know that I know that we've got some work to do. Um, but yep. yeah, I think that's an, it's a good way to be able to um, have a patient look at what's going on in their system and then you know, be able to check these boxes and say, oh my gosh, that's me. I mean, I'm having a lot yep. of those typical signs and symptoms. So how would you go mm -hmm. about uh, making a diagnosis for one of these patients? Yep. So the, the cluster analysis is one, like I said, you have to have a, at least one symptom in at least eight of the 13 boxes. And then there's also a, it's called a visual contrast study. And this is something that you can go on to the website, survivingmold.com. And um, it's $15 and you log in, you complete the test, and what it evaluates is the, the health or the inflammation of your optic nerve. And this, um, according to Dr. Heyman and Dr. Shoemaker, this is the one of the tests that you do throughout your entire treatment protocol to make sure that you are getting better. And if you feel like those who are on the protocol and they feel like things are changing or worsening, 
they need to go back to do a visual contrast study because that will tell them depending how they score, if they fail it, they had some type of exposure and then there's a protocol to kind of get them back off of the high of all the, of, of the inflammation. So it, it's a very important tool that we use to determine, can we go to the next step of therapy? I, I was reading on that uh, VCS test uh, that mm -hmm. typically after you start treatment, uh, one to three months after that, it should be um, starting to normalize. And if it's not, then you need to start looking at um, potential repeated exposure or that patient mm -hmm. never actually getting away from what's causing their issue. Is that correct? Correct. And um, one of the first steps is obviously trying to either get out, figure out where your, where your exposures are. And sometimes like I said, it could be back 20 years ago and you don't even, didn't even know it, but there's, there's tests to do um, different type of like dust collection tests that, you know, are recommended to do to see, do you have signs that you have mold spores in your house or where, wherever you think you're, you're at. So usually within the, within the protocol, um, within three to four weeks of starting it, they usually recommend to do a, do a visual contrast study and then usually monthly. And like I said, if, if you don't pass, you don't pass go, you don't pass, you don't get collect that 200 bucks. You stay right where you are until you can pass that visual contrast study. That's a great analogy. <laughs> I, I, I think it's, um, I think it's interesting. Um, you know, we're going to get into the HLA genotype and, and figuring that out, but, um, you know, for, for myself, and my family member, we lived in the same buildings. We lived in the same houses. Um, I know that our, our house in Fargo, when we lived there, had mold, had black mold. Mm -hmm. I think every house in Fargo probably has mold. Um, mm -hmm. But I, I, I don't have the symptoms um, that yeah. family, other family members. How, how does that happen? Is that, is that a genetic issue then, do you think? or? So yeah, it's likely the, like, like I said, that bridge that, or the bridge that connects the two immune systems, um, that's also called the antigen presenting cells. That bridge is where that chromosome six line different HLA markers. And likely, typically you have to have an HLA, what's called SNP, um, within that genetic code to not allow your two um, immune systems to communicate properly. Got it. So that, that would explain why. So uh, you likely probably don't have, well, guaranteed you don't have the same genetic, you know, makeup as your family member, but right. I mean, you and I can tolerate it perfectly fine where somebody who has a significant mold um, problem along with that uh, genetic SNP, they're going to be a completely different story. Yep. So, so as far as like testing, so the VCS testing, 15 bucks, like the genetic test, the MMP9 test, the whatever tests you're going to run for Lyme, are those extremely expensive or are they attainable for most people? So um, the, like you said, the, the VCS is, uh, I guess, max of 15 bucks. Um, lab core testing that we do, um, we draw approximately 15 tubes of blood. That is sent through insurance. So the cost of that, obviously depend on insurance. Um, I believe the, the nasal swab from Marcon's, I, I want to say that's maybe 150 or so. Okay. Uh, the dust, the dust collection, I'm not 
I can't give you a price point on that because I'm not exactly, I don't recall that pricing. Um, but also through the uh, Dr. Heyman, Dr. Shoemaker, and a bunch of other um, scientists and gurus, they have also developed a test called the Genie Test. And due to a lot of this being genetically, genetic um, makeup, that this Genie Test looks at, I believe it's about 173 different genes that um, they can tell are, are these genes upregulated inappropriately? Are they turned off when they should be on? Are they doing okay? And there's various different um, categories of genes, which you know some are a Lyme gene, um, SIRS, toll receptors, B cells, T cells. So it's it's definitely not a necessity for you know evaluation, but it's definitely can be very very helpful. Now that one unfortunately is not cheap um, by any means, but it can be for those who are desperate, mm -hmm. it's out there. Okay. So you, there, there are some options. I mean, even you have yep. the symptom cluster analysis, which gives you a lot of data and it's free. So, so you know, just dipping your toe into it isn't um, probably going to cost a ton of money. So, um, so we, we, we now kind of know what a patient is going to look like. We kind of know what um, symptoms they're going to have. Um, how are we going to test for them? What, what are some treatment, just some general treatment options that we're going to look at? What, how, do, how do we handle these patients once we figure that SIRS is an issue? So initially, um, we try to get, or we, we get them on what's called well-call or cholestyramine. And the purpose of that is to help, um, bind toxins in the gut so they don't keep recirculating through their, um, up through their liver. And um, we, so we start the well call. Um, we also try to calm that brain on fire because again, as if we can't calm that brain on fire, we're going to continue to um, cause more of that damage to the brain. So we need to calm the brain on fire. And then we need to try to help raise that um, MSH level. So one of the best things that we can do for that, it's, it's a product called Synapsin and that has, it's called RG3, um, nicotinamide riboside, which is B3, and then methylcobalamin, which is uh, B12. And what that does, it has panics ginseng in it, and it's a nasal spray, two sprays twice a day and into each nostril. And that just helps get into the brain, decrease that inflammation, start to help people focus um, you know, they can think about what they want to say. They're not finding difficulty with their words. They can understand new knowledge, energy, sleep. Um, and then also trying to help repair the phospholipid, phospholipid layers of the mitochondria. So mitochondria, that powerhouse of your cell. And if once you get this damage done to your brain, your, your mitochondria get damaged too. So we have to start rebuilding the phospholipid layers and we have a product to kind of help support the four possible up the layers. And then we just kind of stick with that process until we get that passive visual contrast study. Okay. So I know, um, I know you've used um, low dose naltrexone in your practice. Do you find mm -hmm. that as another tool within this just due to the, the, the blocking of the neuroinflammation going on? Yeah. So the, the individuals who I have currently um, kind of on my SIRS initial protocols, some are on it and some haven't been on it. Um, I, I believe it's a, it's a key piece to it. I know, you know, with Dr. Heyman, Dr. Shoemaker, um, they have a few diff 
different ideas about it, but I, I don't also have the research that I could give you that information, but I, I believe it. I mean, what Lodos Naltrexone has done for patients across the board, I tell patients it's like a little miracle drug because it has transformed our lives. So I do believe in it. I think, um, you know, these patients that we're talking about uh, with SIRS tend to be super sensitive, correct? Mm -hmm. Um, I Mm -hmm. think that, you know, one of the things with uh, the naltrexone, the low-dose naltrexone is we've we've found that, you know, in these patients, we've really had to, to go extremely low on them to start. Like I have one patient so a typical dose of naltrexone might be 0.5 to 1.5 milligram. We have one patient that is on 0.01 milligram, so 10 micrograms essentially. And she's basically just putting a dot on the back of her hand of a liquid, licking it off, and that's how she takes it. And it, it's amazing because at that dose, it clears up her brain fog and mm-hmm. it, it helps with her chronic pain issue that she's got going. But then on the other end of the spectrum, I've got patients that are on, you know, 12 milligrams, which is, you know, mm-hmm. thousands of times higher than that dose. And that's the dose for them. So that that's always a tricky um, issue is trying to figure out what's the what's the optimal dose for these patients, which is challenging and frustrating and fun all the time. <laughs> so, as yep. I'm sure that you're seeing with, with your patients as well. Right. So um you know, I, I, um, in the treatment phase, uh, one thing uh, which we did talk about was removal of, of the offending issue. So if that's mold in your house, you know, some of these people are going to have to move if, if they've got mold in their house. I always go back to, you know, I've been a pharmacist for, this will be my 34th year. I had a patient in Fargo that um, was a chronic lung patient, bad asthma. And I don't know if you remember, do you remember the, um, uh, gosh, darn it, what's the name of that? Um, the beta two blocker agonist, uh, Max Air Autohaler. Do you remember that thing? No, I don't. Okay, that's actually perbuterol. And it was a great device because it was a device, it was an inhaler that had a little flap in it that as you breathed in, the flap would come up and then it would set, it would actuate the, the inhaler. So there was no timing issue with, with inhalers. We usually have a timing issue mm-hmm. and this flap, you just had, it just, you just breathed in and all of a sudden it actuated and you just take your, take your breath and, and it would work. And this gal's breath was so weak. She couldn't even get the flap to come up to actuate the mm-hmm. inhaler. She tried so hard and I'm like, Oh my gosh. She had wow. mold in the crawl space of her of her of her building or in her house, and I just you know I didn't know. I mean, we knew that that was probably the issue, but looking back now, as you kind of think about patients that you've worked with over the years, and the knowledge that you have now, and how you can help them now versus mm-hmm. the tools that you had at your disposal back then. It's like, this just opens up a whole new world of uh, being able to take care of patients. Right, yep. Yeah, it's, it's crazy how, you know, they say once you open the door, you can't go back. And this definitely <laughs> is one of those, one of those times. So, you know, what, what can a patient, you know, what do you look at for a patient? What do you, what do you expect as far as 
how long for them to start feeling better? What do you what do you typically see, or what do you think a turnaround time is for these patients? So it's you know it's just really dependent on that individual, like you said, sensitivities. Um, I have patients who can tolerate the well call. Other patients do horribly with it and have to slowly titrate up. So um, usually, though, within um, usually within a couple weeks, they they at least are starting to notice even small changes. And, you know, it also goes back to, are they going someplace where they're getting re-exposed to? Because that could just set them right back. Right. And, and beyond like the first, the first initial stage right now, you know, I, I don't have a ton of, you know, patient experience right at this point in time, mm -hmm. but because I'm still in the learning process, we're still working together through it and I'm still taking classes, but at least we can start the process and help these patients more than they've been able to get help before. So, so, you know, that the whole entire process, you know, I can't, I can't give you that answer, but I know I'm um, between Dr. Heyman, Dr. Shoemaker. I mean, it, it could be eight, nine months, a year, a little bit more. So it's just Got it. so individualized. I think, uh, you know, in these patients, like a lot of our patients that have been sick for such a long time, I think to get them in the mindset of this being more like a marathon rather than a sprint mm -hmm. is essential Absolutely. so that we kind of kind of can get them in that mindset. It's going to take some time, but just to plug away and, and be persistent yep. and, and things will, will get better. So right. well, this was a, a huge, great overview of SIRS. Uh, kind of from start to finish. Uh, anything else you want to you want to share on the surge front, or, or or do you think we got it pretty well wrapped up? Um, I I think overall we probably got a like I said a good a good ten thousand foot view of what of what SERS is, and you know I guess I I start talking about it and I I do get excited because I just want to help patients. I want to help patients get better and. That is my passion. So it's a lot of work on my part, the patient's part, but you know what? It's, it's worth it. Awesome. That's, that's great. The, the community up there is just real fortunate to have you and your, your clinic available to them. So anything else going on at uh, Minot Health Clinic that you want to share? Or are you guys uh, doing good, doing well? Yeah, um, we are in the process of hiring, um, interviewing and hiring for another, an, provider to come on board. Uh, right now we have two other providers, um, Kelly uh, Faf and uh, Sandy Story. So their schedules are pretty full and yeah, just you know, trying to get more people here just so we can help more of our community and and here in the next, you know, in the future they'll, we're gonna be having some exciting changes for, for myself to be able to help patients in a different way. And so, yeah, um, it's, there's stuff coming down the pipeline and That's unknown awesome. the time frame, but yeah, it's coming. Well, I, I think this, uh, this opens up the door to a future podcast as we um, get more of your patients under your belt and, and uh, be able to share some of the stories that you're having and successes. Um, so I look forward to uh, hopefully doing this again in the future. So um, yeah. I want everyone to really thank you for joining me on the, the Earthfield Pharmacy Optimal You podcast. And um, I hope the listeners have found this to be informative and helpful in their journey. And know that um, 
as always, we want to be vigilant about our health. As always, be vigilant about your health.